theme for the afternoon talk is liberation of the heart. There are many ways that we can take notice of our life and uh, uh, the fullness uh, of it. And one of the simple compositions that we have is the uh, the wise and skillful use of our mind for knowledge, for practical uh, information and for its uh, application into the variety of daily circumstances and for some it requires from us a certain quiet discipline. We live in a society which is kind of obsessed with uh, information it pours into us day in and uh, day out and it's the quiet discipline of being able to say no to this and uh, yes to that what is it that really is helpful to know about to reflect on, to digest to allow to go more deeply into our being what is rather shallow and superficial and rather uh, pointless and it's the kind of spirit of the contemporary yogi we might say who needs the discernment uh, in terms of what we read and the information that comes to us and what we speak and what we share with others there's also the relationship, spoken much about, of course, with the body. Uh, there's consciousness, which includes meditation and awareness, uh, seeing uh, clearly. And there is also the heart. I'd like to address some areas and issues with regard to this uh, today. And firstly, in relationship or communication with the matters of the heart we need the vigilance of the cobra in front of us so to speak um, of the movement of the I of the self in relationship to everything and certainly in relationship to the matters uh, of, of the heart in our relationship to our feeling world it is quite different from thought. We can be um, meditating, can be mindful, and quite often there is the capacity, if there is a stream of thinking taking place, just to breathe in, breathe out, and quite quickly cut it. We can say to ourselves with the stream of thought, this is worth immediately letting go of. What is the point in, in engaging in circulatory <coughs> thinking? So there can be, in the letting go and the dropping of thought, an immediate benefit. Immediate benefit. We cut the thought. We drop the thought. We're not <coughs> feeling the thinking process. And certainly any time where the thinking is reproducing itself, the moment that we get a sense of circulatory thinking 
we know we're in a kind of loop with it. It's not going to lead anywhere because we're going around in a circle with the thinking. And that requires a change of energy or of attitude or of view or the cutting through. That principle does not apply with the heart. We might tell ourselves this these feelings that I'm having I should just painful or difficult as an example we might be saying to ourselves oh I should just let them go I should just drop them it's a wrong perspective it's an unhelpful unhelpful way of looking it may and does and can really apply to thought but with a, a heart life quite often it's a certain kind of fading away. We may not be putting any wood on the fire, but the fire may not go out immediately. It won't go out immediately. It will fade out. The heat of the situation will fade away. And it requires from us a certain kind of patience in the heat of the heart, in the emotional turbulence, in which there is no wish to continue it, there is no wish to feed it or sustain it, then that requires from us a quiet patient, not feeding it, and then the coolness will come, patiently, quietly. <clears throat> in matters of the, of, of the heart, some expressions of the heart genuinely um, contribute to what we call um, uh, uh, expansion, um, the opening of the heart. It is not the teachings that the heart stays open all the time, uh, every day, simply because it's not possible. It's, it's not in the realms of realism, it is a ideological, spiritual uh, virtue, but frankly, doesn't really have foundation. Nevertheless, <coughs> there are situations in the matters of the heart which in their presentation really do have a feeling of uh, expansion. Sometimes our heart warms to the other. She, he, this or that to the sky above and the earth below, to the countless beautiful, precious, momentary incidentals of life. And in those incidentals of life, something touches us. And these moments of the expansion of the heart, something touches us, it really is helpful. When something touches you, in that moment or moments, forget everything. Stop. Be still. Just resonate. Just recognize and just acknowledge that uh, touch, that which has touched you. And the moment of that which has touched us, whatever it might be, something you see, hear, smell, taste, or touch, or a memory, or a creative idea, that which has uh, uh, touched you Quite often, if we stay calm and steady, as mentioned before, will sp speak to us 
it will inform us it will invite us of something reflect something bigger we look up at the stars uh, at night we're not just looking up at the stars we're looking out into the uh, universe we look at a plant and it's representative of the entire field of uh, nature we see beauty in the human being or whatever in the, in the art in the arts uh, here and something resonates inside what resonates and touches is, this is, impo- is as important for a human for, for a human being it's important for us as water is to drink human beings we can't live without being touched we'll die and that capacity to be touched sometimes some of us say might go to the art gallery uh, there and there's a lovely uh, tradition look at the walls uh, uh, here of the, uh, of the art the person in the Dharma hall here who did these uh, statues the uh, late uh, Lord Abbott and uh, the other statue uh, behind I would watch him working and he lived in the end room there for years and years and would just come chip, 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 doing his work uh, there and created these statues there the Lord Abbott in terms of uh, this situations of the heart he woke up the previous one he woke up one day and he had the idea to build a tall statue have a tall statue built now when, the, uh, when he first came here it was nothing but fields it was 1955-56 he was one of the activists to um, end the British occupation he worked with the Mahatma with Gandhi he then ordained after the assassination of uh, Gandhi and he came here with his mosquito net and he hung it over a branch in the field in the middle there and he just sat there and he just stayed there and he meditated and he went out to get his food and came back and gradually, gradually this whole monastery built around him and he woke up with the idea a few years ago to build a statue and the workers came and he said he wanted it done in, its, in the original way that statues were done and in that they got the rock the pieces of rock from a sacred mountain of the time of King Ashoka which is 2000 more uh, years ago and brought them here and the size of the of these uh, pieces of rock were cut into blocks and each block maybe maybe a meter wide by a meter uh, deep there were 567 blocks of stone he then brought in the ancient workers uh, there and those workers who uh, uh, came generation after generation 
and he said, no electricity, no engineering, no metal there to work on the blocks. And each year he would come and I could not comprehend just, just my poor old Western mind because they were chipping, chipping away no maps, no diagrams, no measurements and just chipping away. I mean, I, I said... And they had one person who was the chief engineer and the uh, architect of the statue there and he took me to his room one day. He had a model this high. And that's all. And each of the workers, probably 20 of them, knew exactly what to do. And I said to that abbot, but if they're chipping, chipping, and they make a mistake, it's going to ruin the block of stone. He said, no problem. They never make a mistake. <coughs> and I said, I want the sangha, they asked, to contribute. I said, how much is it working out for a block of stone and to be finished and for all that's required and he said uh, it's around three hundred uh, uh, dollars so you can work out the cost of the statue five hundred and sixty seven blocks of stone times three hundred you know I left school at the age of fifteen so I have no idea what the number is but you can work it out so I said we will buy two blocks of stone the teachers, there were three or four of us, would buy one block and we'd invite the Sangha to give the money for the other block. And I said, well, we re probably would regard um, the lips as the essential point. So the yogis bought the upper lip and the teachers bought the lower lip. And that's uh, uh, for the around... Uh, $600. What was equally remarkable, this is the act of love, service, creativity and dedication over years. The abbot said, we're only using the traditional method. We will build that only using bamboo. Oh God. You're quite sure? I mean, it's incredibly <coughs> dangerous hauling up and it all had to fit like a jigsaw puzzle every centimetre had to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle and these guys huge block pulling it up using bamboo poles and a box whoa it falls it's all over look at it 27 metres high Beautiful in the different colours of the uh, that the light bring both uh, day and and uh, and night. The, finally, I found it a little amusing. The statue originally was intended to be near the gate at that end. They had got a third of the way, and then the council in Varanasi. Bless India, only in India. Said, <coughs> got a third of the way to be built. You can't build it there, <coughs> this statue. And when the abbot said, 
why can't we build it there? It will distract the drivers. <laughs> Excuse me, am I? <laughs> so I had to take apart, carry it all the way down, and put it up down there. But it actually worked out rather well because of the lovely long view, da da, and it's just the other way around from what was originally intended. Uh, uh, there. But I use it just as a small example. There is the idea. It's a creative idea. It's rather a beautiful uh, (coughs) idea. And then, (coughs) pardon me, after that comes some activity. And and then then there's some boldness and a love of the traditional way in this particular case, and something uh, evolves. And what one sees with this art, Mother India, Thailand, uh, Angkor Wat, this is some of the great Buddhist art, they all have one thing in common, every single one of these great forms of art, and that is there is no self attached to the art. It's not in the tradition. The art is, is just extraordinary, but there is no name in the right-hand corner. It's a selfless contribution of the arts, music, dance, architecture, and much, much more. And the spirit of it is to be selfless, because the tradition encourages it. We work in a different way in the West. In the manner of the heart, once again, this powerful movement is so important to us that probably some of the greatest men and women who have lived in this earth, on this earth is actually due to their heartfulness and what they have given us. And there have been and continue to be some genuinely remarkable human beings and sometimes we've had the privilege of meeting with them. And therefore there is something moving from within to the without and sustaining it which has given tremendous inspiration and insight and support for others. That which we sense he, she, they uh, uh, with, with the other can we in our modest and small life find some capacity to keep the heart open, to have some association with such uh, human beings directly and indirectly and maybe, possibly, something out of that expands our being and we can say, in our own modest way, can allow something to express itself. And quite often a lot of the suffering which of the heart which human beings experience is because the heart wasn't given the real opportunity to really expand and express itself. And when that opportunity isn't happening for us, certain events of who or what is close to us 
that has a, such an impact. It has such an impact on us. And the world of life and death and of, and of change isn't easy to handle. You and I have probably listened to many, many stories of grief and sorrow and despair and, and, uh, and, ang- and anguish and lamentations over uh, uh, issues there. And those events in, in uh, uh, life, the self may say, the self, you know, will say, may say, I, this is the self, it's ego, I have lost, this is the view, I have lost. As if, as if I had in the first place, as if that was mine. And that view of the self never really being addressed, when one has, we will always be vulnerability, vulnerable to not having. And the not having is the grief. And we and quite often, many, many times, this gradual movement in which the idea is, oh, how tragic it is that the separation, the person has left us, or the death, uh, the loss. And we think we are, our tears and our grief and our sorrow is over the loss of the other. And, and there is disappointment and there is hurt in all of that but also there is a lot the grief is over what I have lost it's the self and, and in that movement of the self it can show itself in f- probably four ways uh, and, and it's important to track uh, this because none of them are fixed. So sometimes we, we will say to ourselves, we will say to others, I have so much emotion, grief, despair, sorrow, I have so much emotion in me. So there is the emotion, and the emotion, the feeling, the experiences in me. And then the view may change, and the view which then arises is, I am lost in the emotion. So the emotion is not in me, but I am lost in it. I have fallen into all of this despair, all of this anguish, all of this sorrow, and I am lost in it. And sometimes it's not in me, I am not lost in it, but I am facing all of this emotion, all of this anguish and sorrow, and it's really affecting me. And then that's another relationship with it. And each one keeps cancelling itself out. Is one more true than the other? 
How could that be possible? If one was more true than the other, then the other which is not true, or not really true, the level of the emotion would have to go down dramatically because one would see, well, that actually is not true. And the other, of course, in the relationship to the emotion, can be, there is just this experiencing taking place. There are these emotions which are going on. And that can contribute to finding a little bit of space around them. In other words, it's the capacity to see it more impersonally. I didn't create these emotions. I didn't invite them. I never ever wanted them. I'm going through this sorrow, this grief, this, dis- uh, this despair it has arisen owing to the causes and conditions and in those causes and conditions with it there are some things which I just didn't realise I didn't realise the sense of possession of the other and then the loss I didn't realise how much holding was going on I didn't realise how much I'd transferred on to the other for my peace of mind. And then sometimes in with the heart, with the separation, or with the loss, or whatever it might be, you may start to become a little bit aware of what was going on unnoticed, as the Buddha said, through ignoring the word is avidya through not seeing or not knowing or not realising what was going on with me and I had settled whoever the eye is into the pattern over days, weeks, months, years and decades and just didn't realise how much possession ownership dependency and reliance was going on and that brings the grief the other didn't cause it. The other has no power to, their presence or their absence, has no power to cause us grief. If that was the case, every time there is a loss in this world, we would all be grieving with it, because the other could cause it. And we don't cause it ourselves, it's just that the conditions were there which were uh, unfolding. And the Buddha in the discourse of mindfulness, his primary discourse, along with the, this one here, and given the first one, and the, another discourse on inquiry, and the fire discourse, and the noble search discourse, the four foundations of mindfulness. He starts off with extraordinary time-honoured words. He said, one applies the application of mindfulness to the breath body to feelings to the states of mind and to the dharma (coughs) of the inner and the outer one applies in the to overcome grief lamentation which is an intensification of grief that's what that word means 
and despair, which is the intensification of lamentation. One practices to overcome this and with grief all too human which can generate so much suffering with the grief which arises for people there is in it desire always in the language of the Dharma grief has desire and usually the primary (coughs) desire humanly enough I wish, I want it to be different. Or I don't want to feel like this. Or I want this person back. Or, or whatever it might be about. And when there is the, the absence of the grief, is the moving with life, and as the Buddha commented himself, with the loss of his deepest friends, in this case referring to Sariputta and Moggallana, remember they'd been travelling together for decades incredibly close, shared incredible uh, experience together. He spoke of the sadness of the loss and the sadness of the loss does not have wanting it to be different. It's not blaming oneself or sometimes blaming the uh, or the other uh, there. It's feeling, as we've been doing in these last days or so, feeling quietly and deeply the feeling of the sadness at the loss. <coughs> it would be rather cold and inhuman not to experience sadness when a loved one passes away or somebody moves out of our life that we don't see who who we love can we be deep enough in the being and in that never take anybody for granted and you and I know there are people in our life who are close to us they could be a friend, it could be a partner, husband or wife, it could be children or parents or grandparents or whatever. That in the situation in life of people who are really important, is there an understanding of life and death? Is there the quiet capacity to know that with certain people in our uh, life that our relationship to one needs to be exceptionally clear because of the, inf- the vulnerabilities of life the, in- the uncertainties of life the insecurities uh, of life and so there are certain people to understand as it's said so often that or who which arises stays and passes these teachings of (coughs) impermanence the teachings of change are so precious and so uh, important and in change which is unwelcome and unwanted whoa these teachings if the understanding has got deeper with us these teachings are can really be a real support to us. 
<coughs> and with that, as our loved ones would wish, for us to, in the, the world of change and the, and the heart that takes place, to quietly, as they would wish I'm sure, for us to move on with our life. They also don't want us clinging and holding on to their memory. They also, they want us to be happy. They don't want us to be grieving and they don't want us to feel despair or whatever. They want us to get on with our life uh, as, as well. And it's to notice that if we can quietly stay with the feeling of sadness, human and natural, that sadness will quietly and patiently, unlike the thought where you can just kind of drop it, that quietly and patiently, that grief, that sorry, that sadness will quietly be such that we'll be at peace with the situation. We'll be at peace with what happens. And that inner listening to the feeling life is really a precious contribution to that. Please give a little reflection on those that you know or have known and our connection and our relationship. And the tradition, to its great credit, talk a lot about this. A friend of mine, her two parents are psychotherapists. Both parents are about the same age as myself, i.e. in the 70s, I'll be 75 in a couple of months. And they were having some a meal together. So the <coughs> the son was at around the house one evening and having a meal together, and I think a parent birthday or whatever. Anyway, so just sitting around the table, and the son said to the parents, "Look, you're in your seventies. The son loves his mum and dad." very much there and said to them look we've never had any to talk about death he then and he said to them actually when you when the time comes I don't know whether you would prefer to be buried or created you've never had any conversation what kind of service might you like because it could happen in the 70s or 80s or longer and it'd just be really helpful there. Both parents are psychotherapists. Do you know what they said? We don't talk about death in this house. Do not bring it up again. That is a measure of denial, of avoidance, and the son said to me, one of the meditators, said, said to me, I haven't brought it up again. But it will come up. Death will be there. So we require some willingness to, to share and to talk about it. And listen to it. I have a, a photograph at home. I'm standing on one side of, in the photograph when I was a monk, young guy, 26 years of age. And there is myself holding the hand of a dead monk. And on the other side is the Ajahn, Ajahn Dhammadaro. 
and he's holding the hand of the dead monk. The monk had been had needled with the formalin to stop the smell, etc. And we're just standing with the photograph, holding this dead monk's hand. Actually, a wonderful, wonderful monk. And he was asked a few times to teach. A lot of wisdom, a lot of insight, heartful, warm. And he said, oh no, no, don't ask me. I couldn't be an adjunct, I couldn't be uh, a teacher. He, then he said, then his eyes lit up. I can teach. When I'm dead, keep the body. So, this is Long Poor. Long Poor means elder brother. This is Long Poor, dead. Wonderful teaching on impermanence. Anicca, Watta, Sankara. Wonderful teaching. So, there was the body. Sometimes put it out in the chair, in the like the grounds in the middle, monks were meditating, and he's sitting there. We get a, a cloth there, put his furniture polish, polish the body, pick him up at night, walk him to the cabinet, tear him to the cabinet, put him back upright in the cabinet for the night, next day come out, sit him in the chair, you will not see this in the West. I promise you. Not even the burning gats of nearby Varanasi will we see. It's all got to be hidden. All got to be kept away. When my beloved mother died aged um, 94, my sister says, Do you want, I was in England, she's in Australia, do you want to see your mum? Absolutely, of course I want to see my mum. No. Flew there, went to the funeral parlour, as it is called. And my nephew, who's about 40 years of age, my sister's brother, and he, I said, would like to come with me? He said, I'm a little bit nervous, he said, because I've never seen a dead body in my life. And he's 40. And the other son said, no, I don't want to see, I don't want to see. But the fullness of life and the heartfulness of uh, life uh, as well is to, to meet it and to engage and to learn about it and to accommodate this birth uh, to, to death uh, uh, there. And when somebody dies, in, uh, in rural Thailand, the villages of Thailand. It's quite common for the village people to say, birth, aging, pain, death. Ajahn Buddhadasa, my teacher, would start off his talks quite regularly. Great one-liner, really brought the attention of, to the listener. Dear brothers and sisters, in birth, ageing, pain and death. It's a fairly straightforward start to a thought. Whoa! Wake up! And if we can explore all of that, because we're not afraid of it, friendship and kindness and warmth can expand itself. 
How am I doing? Not bad. And one of the beautiful things here is a final and important point that I'd like, like to make. With the heart's expansion, that kindness and compassion and gratitude and uh, generosity, the Buddha speaks of it as being immeasurable. There are no limits to human capacity to share, to give and to offer. No limits to it. It's an immeasurable. It is limitless. It is infinite. Yeah. And the same language and the same words are used for that which is ultimate. That which is ultimate has no limits to it. Just look at the sky at night. That which is infinite has no limits to it. That which is immeasurable, it's so vast it can't be measured, has no limits to it. So the depth of the being of the heart can have a sense of the limitless through the huge expanse of the heart. And sometimes when our heart is really expansive there, we are extraordinarily close and intimate with the ultimate. It's an extraordinary doorway, love, for the ultimate. And some of the great teachers who walk and walked on this earth know this extraordinarily well that infinite love is the confirmation of the infinite as much as anything else so let's keep our exploration of heartfulness uh, alive let's remember it's in friendship meta m-e-t-t-a it's in kindness it's in generosity it's in love, it's in the romantic, it's in the erotic, it's in the sensuality, it's in the passion, it's in the uh, act of the giving, it's in many, many ways that it can really express itself. And that interest in the creative, expressive uh, heart is really a, a wonderful and precious feature of our practice. Let's have our quiet minute together, shall we? beings live with the great expanse of the heart. 
May all beings know the depths of love. May all beings live with the liberation of the heart. Thank you.